Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to the realest podcast in the dunya, the Three Muslims podcast. You're, we're joined today with a very special guest, Dr. Omar Zaid. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi. How are you doing today? Mu'alakam masalam. Wonderful. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. It's a pleasure to be Thank you for inviting me. Habibi, the pleasure is all ours. I was just about to say that, subhanAllah. So welcome to the podcast. Um, many viewers are looking at, you know, you right now saying, mashallah, you know, very, very uh, good looking man. What is his story? SubhanAllah. You know, when I think of the average Muslim, we think of someone like Fayyad, SubhanAllah. When we look at you, mashallah, uh, a lot of people are wondering, SubhanAllah, what is his story? And you mentioned before the army, SubhanAllah. And people were calling you doctor since before you were a doctor. So do you mind sharing a bit of your story, your journey to Islam, whether you were born into it or found it later in life? Oh, goodness me. That's a long, long story. I'll try and encapsulate it briefly. Uh, I'm born and raised American in, uh, as a Catholic in southern uh, South Philadelphia along the Delaware River, little town called Chester. That's where I grew up. I graduated uh, high school in 1967. I've been a professional music, musician from the age of 12. I already had my little band and trio when I was 12 years old. My mother was my booking agent. Um, so um, I have that uh, experience behind me and I went off to college at Westchester State College to study music, but I wasn't prepared for college. Nobody really prepared me, even though I had uh, a college preparation course, no one explained to me the true purpose and meaning of education. And that's awfully strange because I've become an educator in my, in my late age. Um, anyway, I dropped out. I went on the road with a rock and roll band and uh, became involved in all the Nafs business of uh, that venue uh, from New York to Baltimore uh, in nightclubs in all sorts of uh, venues. And uh, it was leading me nowhere. I, you know, like all musicians, I had a, a vision of becoming famous, you know, and uh, of course that only happens to one in a hundred thousand musicians, the rest of us starve or just uh, go to hell. So, uh, in any case, I uh, joined the army to clean up my act, went off to Europe, and uh, was uh, in the National Guard in active duty army for the better part of eight years. I lived in Germany for two years. I got out of the army. I lived in England for two years. Then I went back to school on the GI Bill and uh, became a doctor. And that was a 10-year experience. So I became the, uh, well, a teacher, because that's what doctor means. It means teacher, uh, when you look at the Greek root, word, Greek root of the word. So um, I, oh, I studied allopathic medicine, and I became an emergency room physician, a certified family practitioner, I uh, passed all the examinations, and I also self-trained myself in homeopathy uh, to balance uh, the medical approach, because uh, by the time I went to medicine, medical school, I was a bit older and uh, not as naive as the younger students. And I saw that there was a great deal of miseducation taking place, and actually 
psychologically, the educators were breaking all the rules of how to properly educate people. And uh, the bias was uh, very obvious to me. Um, they, they teach doctors to treat human beings like machines. And, uh, you know, when you go to see an allopathic doctor, you might as well be a, a car going to see a mechanic. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. There are sites, some people who approach the dynamics of uh, the metaphysical aspects of our being, but uh, most of them don't, do not, they ignore it. So I uh, uh, practiced medicine for uh, a, a goodly number of years. Actually, I was practicing med medicine before I went to medical school because I was introduced to homeopathic medicine when I was in Germany years previously. So I was beginning to learn that. I became quite good at it. I was a gifted doctor, a gifted homeopathic uh, physician. People came to see me from, I had a private practice as well as a hospital practice. And People came to see me from halfway across the country, by, just simply by word of mouth. And um, basically for homeopathic treatment, not uh, the allopathic treatment. And uh, for those listening who don't know about homeopathic medicine, I can, we can talk about that another time. But you can consider homeopathy a form of Islamic medicine that is poorly understood by most people, even in this day and age. Um, and it's being openly persecuted by the, um, how shall I say, the cattle barons who are prosecuting the COVID uh, uh, sham. So um, after a number of uh, years as a physician, I saw things going uh, very badly in the States. And uh, I decided to leave uh, when I was on the phone uh, with an insurance uh, representative trying to get approval for the treatment of one of my patients. And uh, they were resisting and resisting and finally said no. And so I, it was a young lady and I said, may I ask you a personal question? And she said, of course, doctor. And I asked her, I said, how old are you and how far did you get on your uh, education? And she said, oh, I'm 22 and I graduated high school. I didn't go any further. And so I hung up the phone. I thanked, thank you very much. And I hung up the phone and I said, well, there's the tail wagging the dog. You see, there is an uneducated person telling an educated person what they can and what they cannot do. And that's just the reversal of divine order. Now, I wasn't particularly informed, well-informed about divine order, but you know, that's Fitra speaking. And uh, so I began to observe things more closely. And as I was emergency room, I closed down my private practice after that. And um, I was observing uh, certain aspects of human behavior in the States. And I worked emergency room medicine. And one day after getting off, um, uh, duty, I went to my local uh, uh, buffet breakfast place, and there was a family sitting at the table next to me. They were on holiday, and I could hear, hear them uh, talking, talking, you know, and uh, all they could uh, talk about was whatever they watched on the movies or on television. They had no other element in their conversation. There was no element of uh, community relationships, no element of 
interpersonal relationships, everything was focused on the persons and the personages that uh, they continued they considered to be admirable uh, stars on television or in the movies. And this fascinated me. And so I started listening to other conversations and pretty much that was pretty much the state of conversations. You know, it's either that or some sort of political talk about, you know, famous individuals who were misguiding uh, the people and there were, you know, folks who were uh, in favor or against. And it was a, it was a typical dialectic. And all this dialectic was taking place according to uh, propaganda protocols, which I began to, you know, understand in those days. And I had some psychological uh, understanding as a result of my medical training. So I decided to leave the country. And um, uh, I um, went to Southeast Asia. I did what uh, Imran Hussein uh, has suggested. I, I did the, you know, the, the, the getaway off-grid farming thing in the mountains of Borneo. Uh, and as a stranger, as a white man, that's not an easy thing to do. I had been divorced and I married a local uh, tribal lady from the uh, Bidayu tribe in East um, Malaysia, in the mountains of Borneo, right on the Indonesian border there, where up in the mountains, they still have cannibals uh, to this day. And um, so I'm up there, we cleared some land, we bought some land and I built a house. I spent whatever savings I had doing this. We built a farm. I raised chickens, ducks, fish, and um, a few other things and fruit trees and planted my own rice for the better part of five years. And in between to support myself as well, I continued to work as a doctor uh, in um, um, uh, Australia. Malaysia wouldn't give me a license. They wanted me to go back to school and do the whole thing despite having 25 years of uh, medical experience. And uh, it's a, it's a Muslim country, and I can tell you right now that most of the doctors are incompetent, and which is a very sad thing to say. So they refused to um, uh, give me a license. Australia gave me a license, and I went to, there to work as a locum. So I almost emigrated to Australia, but I saw the same things happening in Australia that was happening in the States, the same mind control, uh, dialectical process was taking place. And I said, well, no, I don't want to jump from that fire into this fire. So I'll just stay up there and with the natives in uh, Borneo and make, you know, make the best of it. Then uh, well, I was also doing a, a, a sort of Christian missionary work because I'd become a Christian a few years prior to my relocation. And I was quite serious about it. I, did, I studied the scriptures, I studied as much as I possibly could, and I was doing preaching, preaching for the local tribes under the um, authority of one of their local um, pastors, whom my wife knew very well. She was also a missionary, and uh, she was a missionary to some of these cannibal tribes <laughs> before, I, uh, before I arrived there. These are the headhunters. And um, so, um, one day, the, the chief pastor was unable to attend Christmas ceremony uh, at, 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 uh, on Christmas morning, and they invited me to give the sermon. And I had been studying uh, intently 
um, the pagan origins of the Christian system. And so I gave the sermon that day on Christmas morning about the Christmas, about the pagan origins of the celebration and on the, the name of Jesus Christ, because it's not, uh, it's not uh, Christian at all. It's not Islamic at all. Nobody he ever knew called him Jesus, including his mother, you see. So I, I did this and I gave the sermon and this was a Pentecostal church, you know, in the Pentecostal church, you get a lot of amens and hallelujahs and thank you, Jesus, and all this sort of thing. I've been there, I've done that. And um, they, there was no amens. There were no thank you, Jesus, no hallelujahs when I finished my sermon, what you would call the kutbah. There was pure, absolute, silence. Now, the head pastor's uh, daughter got up. She was also an assistant pastor and usually took over when he was gone. And she took the podium after I sat down and she said, uh, addressed the audience. And she said, there were about three or 400 people there. And um, she said, oh, well, I know you're all shocked by what the uh, doctor has said, but everything he said is true. So let us pray. <laughs> and so there was a somber prayer and the service was closed and we left. And uh, there was some murmuring, but no thank you, Jesus, and no hallelujahs. There was no joy left in that Pentecostal church. I had wiped it out with the truth. And three days later, uh, the chief pastor came to my farm. I was sitting on the, the porch in a rocking chair, just contemplating whatever I was doing. And uh, he came up, approached me and uh, said, you know, I understand what you did the other day and I have to uh, dismiss you from your post as a teacher uh, in our congregation. And uh, I said, I can explain. He said, no explanations necessary. You're, you're welcome to come and, uh, you know, join us for services and pray, but uh, you can no longer teach. So I thanked him very much and uh, he went on his way and I never went to that church again. It was my custom to pray twice a day at sunrise and sunset. And uh, so for the next year, that's what I did while I was attending to the farm. And a year later, my uh, wife was pregnant uh, with our second son and she gave birth and went to live with her mother uh, for the postpartum uh, period. I never let any of my wives uh, get up out of bed for at least six to eight weeks after they gave birth. And all of them, too many probably, all of them were back in their genes within uh, two or three weeks, thank God. But I knew what medicines, homeopathic medicines and how they should be treated in order to do that. And I can explain that in another session if need be. Anyway, she was with her uh, mother and I was alone at the farm. And I brought a large library with me uh, from the States. It was an extensive library. And I had read most of the books two or three times. And there's, I was looking for something to read again in her absence. And uh, there was one book there I hadn't read. And it was a copy of Yusuf Ali's translation of the Quran. So I picked it up and I said, okay, Satan, I'm gonna find you. And I said, I'm, I was determined to find how it was that uh, Satan had uh, misled, misguided uh, millions and billions of people these last 1400 years or so. 
And so I opened up the book and I opened it up to the first prayer. And um, then um, uh, I was shocked. I said, my God, that's the most perfect prayer I've ever read. You see? And I said, boy, Eblis is really smart. <laughs> so I continued reading and it, uh, I couldn't put the book down. I read night and day for three days. Then I finally closed the book and I went immediately to the Bible, to the uh, almost the last page in the Bible, to Revelations, book of Revelations, chapter 22. And there St. John the Revelator is um, having a conversation with a messenger that some people considered to be um, uh, an angel, others considered to be Jesus. Many, I think the theologians in uh, the Christian congregations are maybe half, you know, split half and half. It was an angel or it was Jesus. In any case, angel means messenger and a messenger can be a prophet. We all know that. Uh, most Christians don't know that, but you know, that's, they don't take their faith seriously enough to, to really study it like most Muslims, you see. And that's a big problem because Jibreel uh, uh, said to, to the prophet, um, the first word was read, was it not? Of course it was. You can't become educated if all you do is recite. Yeah. Recitation is insufficient. You have to read. And um, I can expound on that later. Any case, in this conversation that John is having with Jesus after all these wondrous uh, visions that he had, he then is so astounded and so moved, he kneels down and to worship uh, this messenger. And the response from the messenger, it's right there in this, in this, in this book, it's right there in the New Testament, is the messenger says, do it not. I am a man like you from the tribe of Judah. Worship God alone. There it was, right there. Now, I had read that many times, but it never, I never understood it mm -hmm. until after reading the Quran. So I closed the book and there it was after midnight and in the privacy of my little living room in that farmhouse up in the mountains in, of Borneo, I confessed a Shahada to the angels, to the jinn, and whatever animals were listening, you see. And, La ilaha illallah, ashadu ala muhammadan rasulallah. Alhamdulillah. And I became a Muslim. Nobody preached to me. Now, the background to that is the fact that I had studied the scriptures and I had studied the parascriptural literature extensively. In between all of my work as a doctor and whatever else. I was always reading. That's why they called me Doc as a, when I was in, in the army. They called me Doc because I was the only one with an open book almost everywhere you went, everywhere, every time you saw me, I was reading. I knew 40, 50 years ago that the vaccines were a scam and medically unsound. I was the first one in the army to refuse the swine flu vaccine. They arrested me for it. So as a background of uh, extensive reading, uh, with a background of extensive reading, when I read the Quran, and then I came to this passage there, I mean, there were a couple of passages I came across and I just wept. But um, uh, I came across one passage uh, that uh, essentially said, 
we have given the Quran as a mercy and as a blessing and to complete what came before. Well, I'm here to tell you that I read that book knowing what came before and not only knowing the scriptures or the parascriptural literature, but also the history. I had already been involved in the occult. I had been a Freemason. I had been a member of an occult organization called the Anthroposophical Organization founded by Rudolf Steiner. I had been trained as an initiate. Uh, I had been trained to leave my body consciously and do astral travel. I knew all of this stuff and I knew the occult history when I read the Quran. So when I read the Quran and it talks about the enemies of mankind and these wicked men in high places planted by Allah in all of the cities, I knew who they were. It was not an abstract idea for me. It wasn't something that was just printed words on a paper. I had met them. I had rubbed shoulders with them over the years. Okay, and I knew the way in which they manipulated people, which is one of the reasons I left the States and swore I'd never go back. So in the privacy of my living room, I became a Muslim. Now, within a day or two, my wife came to uh, get some clothes because she was feeling better and she wanted to get back into some of her uh, regular clothing. So she came to pick them up and before going back to her mother's because uh, at the time the period wasn't up. And I said, I have something to tell you. I've become a Muslim. And of course, she's absolutely shocked. You know? And she was speechless. She, I mean, she really couldn't respond to me. And she gathered her clothes and she said, uh, I have to go. And out the door she went. Next day, she came back with her uh, aunt and uncle and two brothers, okay? And they told me, uh, the one brother who had the, the best English, uh, he uh, spoke for all of them. And he said, I understand you've become a Muslim. And I said, yes, I can explain what's happened. He said, we don't want an explanation. We want you gone. It's just like that. Now... I had invested all of my life savings in whatever cash and whatever, whatnot, in this place. And I was a stranger in a strange land. I left my job in uh, Australia because I have, was becoming too old to travel back and forth like that and live out of a suitcase. It was making me sick. And my wife had become sick and I didn't want to entrust her to the surgeons in uh, the melee um, medical system, because most of them are incompetent. Not all, but most of them are. And uh, they think otherwise, but this is a problem with the human denial. So, and the medical education system, which they've copied from the West. See, they've made partners with the Jews and the Christians, and they're jumping right into the lizard's hole. As the, this exactly like this, the the the, uh, the prophet Islam uh, said. So uh, I stopped working and I just get, I just continued my farm work. I was the only white man in that that they'd ever seen, 
planting rice on on the in the uh, paddy rice on the mountains and raising fish and ducks and chickens. And I would take them to the I'd slaughter them and take them to the wet market myself. You see, and uh, that market is uh, about 20 miles, 20, 20, 25 kilometers from my farm. And it was run predominantly by the Chinese merchants. And I had a little stall there and I sold my fish and whatnot. And there was, it, we made enough money just to get by. But after my conversion, um, I had to leave. And uh, that was taking some while. I asked them to, to give me 30 days, uh, uh, you know, 30 days to make preparations and they agreed. And then uh, to make a long story short, we, we tried to patch up the relationship. It didn't work. I had to, I eventually did leave after the 30 days were up uh, about almost a, a year later. During that year, I wrote my first book, uh, Trinity, the, um, uh, the metamorphosis, metamorphosis of myth. And um, I really uh, elaborated on all of the knowledge that led to the sermon that I had given the year previously. And um, uh, it was my first major uh, book. And uh, I remember my, my wife standing over me at one point, asking me what I was doing. And she looked at the computer, was look at some of these things I was writing. She said, are you sure you want to write about that? And I said, yeah. Uh, I have to, I have no choice. And I said, as God is my witness, this book will be published. And about a year later, uh, some, uh, a publisher from West Malaysia contacted me and invited me uh, to come to Kuala Lumpur. Uh, and he provided me with a small income and uh, shelter for about three or four months. And that, that invitation occurred just at the moment when the Malay uh, government in uh, West in East Malaysia changed the immigration laws and I was no longer able to stay because they required foreigners. Uh, you couldn't get residency just because you were married. You had to be retired with a substantial pension and I had no pension. And uh, uh, they wanted you to leave, cross the border every month, which I had been doing, but I used to cross the border and just come back the same day. So it was just a trip across the border and the border wasn't far from me. But now they wanted you to stay for two or three days and that required the hotel, to, hotel expenses. And I didn't have the money for that. So I had to leave. And this man invited me. And I could they're coming for you. They're coming for you in the background. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're coming for me, right? <laughs> Assalamu alaikum, brother. Um, so uh, I, had to, I had to leave and uh, he invited me. So Allah provided me a way to go. He bought my airplane ticket. He gave me a place to stay and uh, gave me a, a small income uh, in order to help me to get my feet back on the ground there in West Malaysia rather than East Malaysia. And... I, I did some things there. Uh, I was editing to reinvent myself and I was writing. So I did uh, some editing work and that helped me to get by, put rice in my bowl. But I was always living on the edge, you see, always living on the edge of, um, of uh, poverty. And it was, I was on more than one occasion, I was just a step or two away from being thrown out on the street 
not because I was undesirable, but because I couldn't pay the rent, <laughs> you see. And each time I came that close, Allah provided another, uh, uh, made another provision, another connection, another uh, housing, another kind of job. And in any case, um, uh, the book uh, was written and it was reviewed. It got reviewed by one of the um, uh, most pious men I've ever met. Um, uh, and um, he was also the vice president of uh, the Islamic University there. And um, he reviewed the book and wrote an introduction to the book. The book hadn't been practiced, uh, hadn't been published, but he, he wanted, to, he asked me if he could uh, have the manuscript because somebody had told him about the book and, he's, and he wanted to meet me. He actually came to my farm uh, and he made a special trip from West Malaysia to East Malaysia to meet me on my farm and we missed each other. And uh, uh, I was in one place, he was in another place and he had to go back. So uh, in any case, um, uh, he told me about a year after I had relocated to West Malaysia that I would have to leave because the secret police were going around behind me to everyone who was trying to employ me or help me, telling them that I was a CIA agent. And I said, gosh, I wish I was. I'd have some money in my pocket, you know. <laughs> he said, you're going to have to leave the country. And uh, I said, okay, uh, but I don't know where to go. And I had to leave the country every month anyway. Uh, so I used to go across the border because it was the closest border uh, to Thailand and just come back the same day. And I usually did that by train. And um, uh, on one of those uh, journeys, I met a Buddhist monk who was from uh, Sri Lanka. And this was a, uh, a monk from uh, a, a sect of Buddhism that did not practice idolatry. You see, B Buddha was a monotheist, which is something that most people don't understand. He hated statues and idolatry and burning incense and all this nonsense. It, this is not his religion at all, not in the original pristine form. And this monk was the first monk that I met who admitted that. And he said he was on his way to Thailand to, to do some preaching uh, to that effect. And so we got to talking and talking and, he's, and I told him my story and he said, oh, I know somebody who needs an English teacher. And I said, you do? And he said, yes, here, you can call her. And so he called this, I, he called this lady on his phone and I talked to her and she hired me over the phone to be an English teacher in Bangkok. Wow. And this, was, this was a private uh, school that, uh, tend, that uh, catered to professionals you know, lawyers and doctors and graduate students who wanted to go to the West and perfect their English. So uh, I got the job and Professor Arafin Zohaimi, who wrote the introduction to my book and told me I had to leave the country. I, I told him, I said, well, I have a job. I just don't have money to get there. And he reached into his pocket and he said, I know. <laughs> he, he took out uh, some money uh, these were uh, American dollars, which he'd held on to for about 30 years in his bedroom, uh, top bedroom door. Didn't know what he was going to do with them until that moment. <laughs> he handed them to me, and that was enough to get me to Bangkok, uh, pay for my first month's rent and food, you see. 
And so there it is, you know, Allah provided for me again. So I went to Bangkok and I taught English for a year. And in the meantime, my manuscript made its way to the desk of Professor Osman Bakar, who was then the research director at ISTAC, which is a graduate school, the top graduate school for Muslim uh, Alim in Malaysia uh, and uh, a part of the International Islamic University system of Malaysia. So he read the manuscript and then he called me because here at the end of that first year in Bangkok, I was about to be expelled from the country again because they changed the rules about being qualified for English teacher. So here I was, a medical doctor <laughs> with uh, you know all those years of experience and I was about to be thrown out of the country because I didn't have an English qualification, you see. <laughs> Most of the English the teachers who teach English don't have half the qualifications I have, but they have a piece of paper saying they do. This is the nonsensical uh, climate of the society that we're now living in. So um, he called me. I got this phone call. I'm a month away from leaving the country, from leaving Bangkok. And he called me and he said, Dr. Omar, I'm Professor Osman Bakar, and uh, I'm at the IIUM ISTAC campus. And I want to know, I've read your book and I'm really impressed with it. I want to know if you'd come back to Malaysia if I got you a position at the university. And I said, sir, if you did, I'd consider that an act of God and I would have no choice. And so he called me back the next day, it's on. And so he sent me money and I became an alim overnight. I was hired by the university without going through any interview process, without any application, purely on his word from having read my book, okay? And um, that's nothing short of a miracle. Uh, so, uh, or equivalent to it. <laughs> I mean, it's not water coming out of your fingers, but that's, uh, it was seemed like it to me at the time. Okay, so um, I went back and, you know, I was really shocked because when I signed the contract that I hadn't interviewed for, it was just put in my hands. Uh, it says, as an alim, you are required. And I read all these requirements, I, but I said, alim, me? I can, I can barely pray in Arabic. You're calling me an alim now. I'm an alim. How does this happen? You see? And uh, Osman Bakar is a fine man, one of the finest men I've ever met, God bless him. And um, he was head of the Georgetown uh, Islamic, Georgetown University Islamic uh, Center uh, for several years before returning to Malaysia. He was the chairman of that department at Georgetown University, and that's not a light position. So, when he brought me back to Kuala Lumpur, they put me in a very fine two-bedroom apartment in a, an exclusive sort of condominium. I was given a job. I was given a salary that was twice the amount they usually give to entry-level research fellows. I was a research fellow as an alim, and I approached him on the first day on the job, and he immediately wanted me to write two books. 
He said, I want you to find the book of Abraham, <laughs> which is a book nobody's found. And, um, uh, and I want you to write uh, a book on the gospel of Barnabas. So the book of Abraham, I'm still working on. It's going to, I'm putting it into a novel form. And I hope to be able to finish that before I leave this place. Um, the book of Barnabas was entitled uh, The um, Forgotten Saints. And so I wrote that book. And in the research, in the process of writing that book, um, I discovered that this one gospel is the link between Isa and Muhammad. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. Now, I know that there's some uh, uh, controversy about its uh, provenance, but it's legitimate. And uh, whatever the controversies are, they're based on uh, Italian-Spanish um, conflicts within the Roman Catholic Church, one family vying against another family for papal power. And they used the gospel, and then they made interpolations and all that sort of thing. But the original gospel, like the original Injil, is perfectly understandable if you erase all of these interpolations. And that's not an easy thing to do because um, you have to be well-read to do it. And most people, including Muslim Alim, are not. So uh, I was able to do that and uh, God be praised. I recommend that people should read that book because it, uh, it clearly makes the link between um, Isa and Prophet Muhammad. And so I continued working uh, in Malaysia as an alim in this university and a few other universities for the next 10 years. And then at the age of, um, how old am I now, 72, about four or five years ago, I had a collapse in my health. I suffered uh, multiple sclerosis. It, uh, I just collapsed one day when I came home and I couldn't work anymore. And uh, thank God that now, uh, you know, if you saw me four years ago, I couldn't walk without assistance. Now I can because I've modified my diet and a few other things and I'm able to uh, manage, but I'm still crippled. And then I had a major heart attack, so I retired. Now, I retired uh, to uh, Thailand. I had a Thai wife after divorcing the Christian wife. I had a few other wives in between. It didn't work out, including a born Muslim. I really wanted a Muslim wife. I couldn't find a decent one who was willing to marry me. They all wanted, you know, a house and a car and, you know, all these other things. They you know, had nothing to do with Islam. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we, we can talk about marriage on another occasion. I, I've heard some of your comments on it. It needs to be addressed. And um, so I, I did that thing and the born Muslim woman, she was from Indonesia and she turned out her, what I thought, I married her for piety, not because I was attracted to her, but I was attracted to her piety and I needed a Muslim wife, you see. And so she married me and she knew I wasn't attracted to her. And she became the, well, one of the worst wives I've ever had. I married the Thai lady who converted uh, to Islam and I really loved her uh, in all the realms. 
And um, the born Muslim wife became so jealous that I had to divorce her. It was just impossible to live. And we lived together in the same house. And why do you do that? Well, that's what the prophet did, isn't it? <laughs> of course it is. He lived with his, all his wives, except uh, the, um, the, the Christian wife, they all lived with him at the masjid. You know, they all had their little rooms right next to each other in the masjid. They would wake up in the morning and say, Assalamu alaikum, sister, how shall we serve our Lord and our husband today? Well, at least that's what they should have said. <laughs> Muslims uh, today, <laughs> you know, they, they, the Muslims today, they don't have this attitude. You know, they want the car, they want the fancy dress, they want the gold, they want the, you know, whatever it is. They want to be treated equal, okay? Uh, they don't understand what equality means because no one's thinking clearly. So anyway, I, did, I, I retired to, to Thailand after my collapse in health. I had a heart attack about a year later and um, a major surgery requiring quadruple uh, bypass surgery. And of that group of people who experienced surgery in Thailand that month at that hospital, I'm the only one still alive. They've all died. Uh, so I'm living on uh, extra grace now, I would imagine, because, you know, as a, as a professional musician, I picked up some bad habits and one of them was smoking. I smoked for 45 years. <laughs> and so I, it's been now four years that I've stopped and uh, it's been a great improvement. Mm -hmm. I still have some way to go. So. My Thai wife, after my retirement and my disability, she reverted to some of her pagan ways, having taken charge and uh, usurping the dominion in the marriage as the, the, the one who drives and handles everything. And, and uh, I was helpless. And, and it, the things got worse and worse and worse. And then recently, uh, Allah provided me a way out. And, it was a way that I didn't like because I swore, and everyone who knows me personally knows that I swore I would never return to America. And now I'm here in Kentucky with a new wife who's perfectly suitable for me. And um, she's also a revert from China. And um, it looks like um, we're pretty well matched. Now, the reason we got uh, hooked up, so to speak, if I can use that lingo, is that Allah gave me a dream about uh, uh, 10 months ago or so. And then at the same time, or relatively a month later or so, Allah gave her the same dream. In my version of the dream, I didn't know, I was with a woman, but I, she was behind me, okay? In her version of the dream, I was in front of her. She knew exactly who I was, but it was the same dream. And uh, so we kind of decided, well, that's pretty meaningful. And then we waited for uh, a few other signs after his tikara and all that sort of thing. And uh, Allah made it uh, possible for me to literally escape Thailand and join this woman. Uh, and we were married a couple of weeks ago by, um, at, uh, at, under the auspice of uh, Sheikh uh, uh, Omar Belash in Buffalo, New York. Belash and I had been, meanwhile, doing some interviewing like we do here for the last year or so. So now I'm in Kentucky and uh, it's, it's wonderful to be here 
Mm-hmm. I think Kentucky is one of America's best kept secrets. And I shouldn't say that because I really should keep it that way. But uh, anyway, <laughs> that's my story so far to date. There's a lot more, but I think I've encapsulated uh, 72 years in uh, about 20 minutes or so. I, I don't know how long it's taken. Mashallah. Okay. Yeah, mashallah. Hold on, hold on. Before anyone says anything, what are you doing now for work, if I, if I could ask that? Oh, I'm retired. I'm on pension. So you, you don't do anything at all? Well, not for active work, no. I, I, I write and I uh, uh, counsel people on occasion. People pay me for, you know, a fee for counseling. And I get some income from the sales of some of my books. Not very much, but I'm on Social Security pension because I worked all these years. Yeah. They took all those taxes from me all these years. And I, I get a pension. And uh, we have some, uh, uh, my wife, Amina, has some means. And so she's one of these women who said, uh, come to me. She said, give me your name uh, after this dream. And you don't have to house me. You don't have to clothe me. I'll take care of that. So this is an answer, uh, a living proof of what the prophet said is going to happen in these times. And she's a reasonable woman. And she understands that good men are for good women, you see. And good women are for good men. Now, most people don't understand the depth of that uh, statement, you see. Yeah. I mean, you know, you study the numbers and you look at the situation on the streets and you see that uh, there are very, very few good men. There's just not enough to go around. So the sister who is reasonable and who wishes to obey our Lord, our King of the universe, and uh, the prophet's example of the Sunnah should desire for her sister what she has for herself, you see. And uh, the problem is uh, not that the men are incapable. Most of the men who are trying to practice polygamy are in fact incapable. They can't even manage one wife, let alone more. But the women are the real problem because they're too selfish. There's nothing worse then, I mean, it's bad enough when you've got a selfish man, but selfish women are the worst creatures on the face of the earth, you see. And uh, that's known historically. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants a selfish woman for boss. Yeah, you know, I mean, so, I yeah. mean. They're, 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 they're cruel. <laughs> yeah. But the reason I ask is because your voice is so crispy. It sounded, voila, it sounded like I was listening to a story just being narrated. Like you ever watch a movie and you have the uh, the narrator the in the background? Yes. Yeah. Well, I would say it was more like an actual movie and someone was narrating. So I literally have, felt like you have the his, his you, you felt that too. Yeah. All three of you. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, listen. If you if there's by some chance that you can get a hold of some kind of equipment, mm-hmm. I do believe that you could use your voice just to narrate books like it wouldn't take any effort it wouldn't take any effort from you except just speaking and reading the book you could read your own books you could read other people's books but listen you have the voice gift yeah you have the gift Hallelujah. yeah i i I guess i'm in the zone as they so speak so thank you very much brother but uh, I, I'm just telling the story. You're absolutely correct. That's what mm-hmm. I've, I've told 
the story in in a way that uh, should be uh, an uh, acceptable narrative. It's the kind of thing that, you know, used to happen. You see, this used to happen all the time before the age of radio and all this sort of thing. In the evenings, what do people have to do in the 19th, 18th century century? They, they eat supper, then there's uh, an hour or two of so, some sort of domestic entertainment. And uncle so-and-so comes to visit, so he tells a story. Or auntie so-and-so comes to visit and they tell the story. And that's how people became informed. They would have a, oh, can I say that word? They would have a conversation, you see? An exchange of heart to heart, okay? I mean, really heart to heart. So that's what's taking place here. I'm giving the narrative and I'm giving it in a heartfelt way and it's coming natural because this is what Allah has freed me from, uh, these selfish preoccupations that come with the nafs, you see. And uh, when you're freed from that, then you can serve the truth. And uh, you serve the truth wherever you find it. And wherever you find the truth, you find Islam. So the truth doesn't always look like a Muslim. <laughs> that's the truth of the matter and so when you hear the narrative like that going heart to heart you're having exchange because you you see if you're actively listening to me then that's your heart is responding you see to what i'm uh, sharing and uh, this is an activation this is an activity okay and it's bilateral okay uh when you have people who are preoccupied with their own nafs and their own ideas, their own, uh, uh, their own ideations, their own biases, uh, they don't listen or they don't tell the story. They can't tell the story because they don't have the narrative. They don't have a real narrative that holds on to the truth. You know? So uh, I, I, I thank you for sharing that with me, uh, brother. Is it Angel? Angel? Um, Angel. Say again? Angel. Again. So thank you. Uh, that's, uh, that's encouraging. Uh, I, like to, uh, I like to teach, but I only, really only like to teach people who want to listen, who want to learn, and who have the capacity to listen and to hear, you see, and to see metaphysically what is taking place. Now, if you see metaphysically what was taking place in my life as I related that narrative, that's a sign of guidance, you see. And um, uh, this is something that enriches not only me, but enriches you as well. So uh, teachers need students who can help them enrich themselves because each time we, people like me give the narrative, we're learning something new. Because there's, there's things in us that we don't necessarily know that we know. And when, the teach, and when the student asks a question, I often find myself speaking in terms that I hadn't really considered consciously before, but they were already there. So it's like uh, the student who's sincere and who listens um, will draw out from me uh, like a, a bucket from the well. And they, they'll draw out waters that I don't even know that are, are there. So this is an, an exchange that is blessed 
by angelic presence, you see. And that is a form of guidance that is missing in the Ummah today. It's missing. You go to Juma on Friday, you fall asleep during the Kutbah. This is not happening, you see. This exchange is not there. Why, Bill? Because the Muslims are, the Imams are giving the same old nonsense, the same old religious, you know, they're spinning the wheel. They're, 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 they're on a plane. They're not on a spiral that ascends to heaven. It just doesn't happen. And that's why, you know, sure, everyone wants to go and be blessed and have their sins forgiven. But my God, I, I've been to Juma so many times and I see just people just falling asleep. The brothers are all there sleeping and nodding off. That's because uh, the imams are not uh, inspired. They're not speaking from the heart. This heart-to-heart exchange is not taking place. And um, it's been a rare experience in my 15 years as a Muslim to actually experience that during Juma. And uh, the, the imams who can do that, they're usually dismissed by government officials because if you can do that, then you get too close to the truth that makes the government officials uncomfortable. You see? Yes. Mm. Let me, let me just add in. uh, And first of all, man, mashallah, just hearing your story. Wonderful. Like I have so many things to, that I want to get across. Mm. So first thing, this will not be the only episode that we film with you. There is no way that we can get, and I'm sure I don't need to ask the three brothers right now. They're, They're on the same page. There's no way we can get everything that we want to discuss with you in one episode from the oh, no, eight minutes no. that we've been talking. Uh, so if you guys made it back, you know, made it this far, write down hashtag Dr. Omar. Or you know what? Right, hashtag bring back Dr. Omar. So that's gonna be the first thing. Number two, Rami, I want you to try to list if you can, like on a note or something, all the points that I'm gonna bring up, just in case I forget, if that's not too much. So bismillah. The first thing I wanted to discuss was you mentioned you kind of left and just you know left the grid started you know living taking Sheikh Imran Hussein's advice so you know raising your own stuff not relying on the system so that's the first thing so Rami if you Mm -hmm. can write that down the second thing I wanted you to go in on COVID right this is something that is going on today you mentioned a little bit about that maybe a little bit into the vaccines too and once that's done the third thing we can talk a little bit about the occult so I know we can't talk about everything today. No. You know, so I guess at least let's cover the first part, inshallah. So the first one was why you decided to leave the grid and kind of just, you know, be off the radar. Well, you see, I was very cognizant of the fact that I was surrounded by um, colleagues, neighbors, family and acquaintances that were all under a form of mind control. They were no longer thinking clearly. And uh, this puzzled me. And I studied the matter a little bit and uh, came to realize that it was a result of propaganda. And uh, propaganda didn't extend only to the television and to movies and this sort of thing. Uh, It extended to the educational system that the entire educational system had become an, a vessel of propaganda for occult powers, okay? 
and they had determined that they were going to keep people ignorant of certain matters that uh, were just not to be raised, okay? And certain historical events, certain his historical matters, certain theological discussions were just not to be had in the educational system. Now, I was brought up a Catholic and I was probably a member of one of the last generations that had a reasonably decent education before this thing uh, called, um, uh, what's it called? The, the, the latest approach to education came up, which is destroying the public mind. In any case, um, when I went to uh, school as a young man, we were still able to study uh, history and literature and a foreign language. And, you know, we had to become proficient in mathematics and that sort of thing in music. So all of these were kind of balanced in the educational system. They're not anymore. Okay. So um, I was fortunate in the realm. And uh, even though I uh, didn't, my first round about uh, with the college university system was, uh, was a failure. When I returned, I was much better informed and I knew why I was going uh, to become a doctor. And I was more well-read uh, as well. And so I saw all of this happening, both from, especially what happened to me as an American was I lived overseas uh, for four years, the better part of, no, more than four years before coming back to the States and going to school as a medical student. So I was able to see how mind controlled the population was because I had had this broader experience living uh, as an expat uh, overseas. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my first days at the student union in uh, the University of South Dakota, I, um, uh, I was walking down the hallway and there was an announcement on the radio that Anwar Sadat had just been assassinated. So I quickly ran into the uh, student union uh, television room and there, I had never been in television room, you see. And there, to my surprise, I saw all these couples, boys and girls, boys and girls, young, young men and women, sitting next to each other, and they were all watching soap operas. I walked up to the television, and I changed the channel in front of all of them. And I said, something important has just happened. And I changed the news station, and there they were Tell, telling what happened with Anwar Sadat, how he was assassinated and everything. And I was shocked. And I'm listening to this and they are all booing me and hissing me out of the room. And I turned around and I said, don't you know who this man is? They said, we don't care. And no, they didn't know who he was. And by, I mean, you know, Egypt, you know, who cares about Egypt, you see? Who cares about such things? Turn the channel back to the soap opera. That was the demand. And so I looked at this, I stayed in the room a few minutes and I saw these young men all trying to please their women so they can get in their pants by watching the soap opera. That's what the reality was. Manhood was on the decline. It was, we were, I was surrounded by a society of what one famous uh, European uh, professor called boy men, okay? He said, the, the post-war generation has raised the generation, is raising boy men. These are men who never achieve manhood. 
all right? And they are governed by their women, okay? This is not the way to serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course, I didn't know that at the time. But uh, having experienced that and then going through medical school and seeing the propaganda and the bias and the unscientific approaches to uh, education and even the art of medicine, because medicine is an art, it's not just a science. Um, I, I, I just decided to leave, okay? And I said, you know, this can't be good. The society is headed downhill and it's going to be a steady decline from here on out. And there's nothing that can save such a society. And I had determined that simply on the basis of Fitra and what little I knew of history. And then later on, I found out that, you know, this is in fact the case. It was a sign of a corrupt society. And uh, as I studied the history of our cattle barons, you know, this only confirmed their hand in the matter. That's why I wrote the book, The Hand of Iblis, because that's what it is. It's the hand, it's the occult hand of the highest orders of occult science uh, that in the service of Iblis. And, uh, you know, at the helm there, you have certain Freemasonic organizations, but there are other occult organizations that are far superior to that. And they date way, way, way back uh, to Harut and Marut and precede that. And I, I've written about that history in another book called Cain's uh, Creed, The Cult of Rome. And I have some series of lectures which I hope to post on the internet to explain this clearly uh, for students like yourself, young men like yourself. In any case, I couldn't stand to be with uh, people uh, who were honoring boy men, you see, uh, as their leaders and liars as their leaders. I, I just couldn't put up with it anymore. And I decided to leave and go off grid as much as I can. And that's what I did. Now, the difference between now and then, you see, I'm doing it again, but this is 20 years later. I'm doing it again because the first time I did it, I did it of my own volition. See, I did not do it with Allah's guidance. I was following my own reason, my own thinking, making my own associations, making my own plans, doing things my way, like Frank Sinatra, you see, and um, uh, it all failed. Now, Allah in his mercy rescued me from that uh, mud of uh, chaotic thinking that's brought about by arrogance and pride. Even though I'm right about my assessments, I was still arrogant about it, you see, and you can't uh, accommodate the truth and you can't honor Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with any degree of arrogance left in your soul. It's got to be wiped out, you see. And then I come to find out later, you know, this is the Sufi goal, you see. <laughs> I said, well, okay, all right, I'm, I'm getting there, you see. And I'm not doing any of these Sufi practices. Allah's just sort of beating it out of me. <laughs> so um, uh, so um, that's why I left, you see. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to some place where People are still holding the families together. That's my idea. And I'm going to go get a good Christian wife from one of these societies. Again, my idea. And I'm going to take all my money and I'm going to build a farm 
in some place. And I said, that's my idea. Again, my idea, you see. And I did all these things. I put in a water system. I put in solar power and all this sort of thing. And what did Allah do? He ripped me right out of it, you see. He ripped me out of it because it was my idea. It wasn't his idea, mm. you see. And uh, I learned that lesson the, the hard way. And uh, now people are always writing, writing to me, what, are you, what about Hishra? How, how can you do these things? What can you do? And then, of course, I learned some things, practical things from this experience that I can now use now as I, as I kind of redo the, uh, the whole nine yards of uh, going off grid and becoming as sustainable as possible when confronting the years to come, because the years that are in front of us are years of precipitous decline. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And so your listeners are well advised to do istikara and to seek Allah's will uh, and as to how to manage this. And I get a lot of requests about a lot of requests about this. And, you know, some of us are going to be able to do it and others are not. I mean, the prophet made that very clear. He said, when you see all these things, you know, run to the hills, uh, take your camel, your sheep or whatever, and yeah. go like the Bedouin. He didn't say go live like the Muslim. He said, go live like the Bedouin. Most of the, Mus most of the Bedouins in his day were not Muslim, okay? Uh, and um, they, but these are people, these are indigenous people who understand the land, okay? They can read the land like you read a book, okay? And he said, go live with them because they will help you to survive. So they're going to provide your ark, okay? Hmm. So some people can do that, but you can't just decide you're going to go do it. You have to do it with guidance. Allah has to provide the connections, the relationship. You've got to have a relationship in order to enter into these circumstances. So the, what else did the prophet say about it? He said, well, when you see these things, if you can't run to the mountains, Isa said the same thing, by the way. Um, he said, then you, uh, you, know, you go get a piece of bark and you go sit by a tree and chew on it until you're dead. Uh, it's going to be better to do that, you see. So, uh, you know, can you build an ark? Can you do hijra in the city? You probably can. Uh, to a certain extent, it's going to be limited. You get yourself a small high rise, you know, maybe eight, nine, ten uh, floors if you can afford it. And uh, you, you know, you do the Babylon thing. You get some hanging gardens, do aquaponics and that sort of thing. And you might uh, do roof gardening and patio gardening on the balcony and probably uh, uh, be sustainable to a certain extent. But still, the hordes, the hungry hordes, and they're coming they're gonna come at you. And you're either gonna to have to shoot to kill <laughs> or you're gonna to have to go find a place to chew on that piece of bark. Man, yo, I'm shook, bro. Oh, man. The reason, I know, me, yo, just, I'll let you just tell, tell them uh, what we were talking about last few weeks. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the situation that we're facing. So, um, I've, I've done it uh, on two occasions now. This is my second approach at it in my declining years. And uh, I hope I have enough uh, time left to get, uh, to get my young wife uh, settled in and as sustainable as possible for the years to come. And in the, in the meantime, I'll finish that book of Abraham 
in my novel, <laughs> because that's, I'm putting it in a narrative form, in a novel form. Yeah. And that's one of the goals that I've asked Allah. I said, please don't kill me until I'm finished that novel. You know, <laughs> it's always been one of my prayers. And so um, uh, I hope after we settle down, we've just moved in uh, a couple of weeks ago and we're settling in and we're making the plans for the sustainable development of, uh, we've got about five acres here and we've got a fully stocked pond with all kinds of fish in it. And we want to turn the land into, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about something here that uh, has just come to me recently as a revelation because people have asked me, well, what do you think about what's going on in Jerusalem and all that sort of thing? And you know, my response is, look, the rock of Abraham has been there for millions of years and it can take care of itself. It doesn't need you to protect it. And that masjid that's built there, uh, that wasn't there when the prophet made his mirage, okay? And that temple mount is not the site of the uh, the prof of the temple of Suleiman. It's just not the right place. That's an old Roman fortress. That's what it is. So people are, you know, pretending to be pretentiously pious, you know, in defense of this thing and outraged because of what the Jews are doing. And I'm saying, look, you know, that's a form of idolatry. And why do I say that? Oh my gosh, Dr. Omar, you're so blasphemous. Well, look, Muslims have lost their autonomy. They lost it centuries ago. Not just recently, centuries ago. This whole thing about taking over Palestine has been centuries in the planning. Okay? Centuries in the planning. And little by little, the Muslim leaders have just let it happen. Because they're poorly informed. And when you're poorly informed about science, about history, about your own religion, about what came before, you see, uh, you can't make the right decisions. You can't lead the people and maintain Allah's protection and refuge. And that's what's taking. So the, the women go out into the streets after, you know, another bombing and they say, where is the God of Muhammad? He's not protecting you. Why? Why isn't he protecting you? That's a question that you need to ask. Why are the Jews walking into that temple mount and shooting anybody they want? That's a question you've got to ask. Because Allah said, if you do this, we we'll go back to the Abrahamic covenant, if you do this, 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 and this, you will maintain your dominion. And I will throw when you throw. Mm. Yeah? Allah's not throwing. The angels are just sitting there and say, well, you know, can we throw with them? No. No, they don't deserve my refuge. They don't deserve my protection. Look what they're doing to their women. Look what their women are doing. Look, look, look how they're robbing from each other. Look how they're stealing from each other. Look how they're backstabbing each other. Look how they're lying. Look at their stupid alim telling everybody to take this bloody immunization that's from mm -hmm. hell. All right? So Allah's not going to honor that. Allah honors the truth. He honors the truth. When we say, get up and say the night prayer, we say, thou art the truth. Do we not? And that's why I said uh, about 10, 15 minutes ago, you live in the truth. I'm in the truth zone. I am in the truth zone, and I happen to know it.
you see. And I'm not saying that arrogantly. I'm saying that in a pious manner because it's happened to me. It is the fact I'm a living miracle. I'm a living proof that the promise of Allah is true. And that's what does that mean? The promise said, the promise is dominion. The promise is safety. The promise is refuge. Is it not? Of course it is. Where is it for the Muslims? Very few of them have this. And if those, and those who say they have it, it's mostly because they're wealthy. And where did the wealth, the wealth come from? Mostly because they've stolen it. Mostly. You see? So, um, what am I trying to say here? Well, we've got a covenant and we've got a promise and we've got, what is it? What's this whole thing about Jerusalem and Palestine? About? It's about the promised land, is it not? Of course it is. So there's the covenant, there's the promise. Those two words are very, very important. And Muslims have lost the promised land because they didn't keep the covenant. They didn't keep their half of the agreement. Well, it's the same thing happened to the Jews. You know, same thing. Same things happened to the Christians. They haven't kept their covenant either. And they've lost dominion in their own land and they're being ruled by these cattle barons and they don't realize it. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that I'll, I'll try to shorten this because I don't want to prolong this, this session. It may be too long uh, for some of your listeners. Um, the promised land is an example. It's symbolic. Okay. It was promised to Ibrahim and his seed. And when Ibrahim said, and to my seed, and Allah said, to the, your obedient seed, I'll make it short. Okay. To, to those who keep the covenant. They will maintain dominion. Those who don't keep the covenant, no, I'm not going to protect them. I'm not going to, you know, it, it, it goes back to the, uh, to the curse on Cain because they'll become, just, they'll become just as cursed as Kabil was. They'll become one of the selfish ones because when you become a selfish one, you bring that curse on you. That's end of discussion. So this promised land is symbolic. Yeah, from the Nile to the Euphrates, I understand all that. But that was for whom? That was for the descendants of Abraham. Okay. And who's the descendants of Abraham? The Jews and the Ishmaelites. That's who it's for. It didn't mean, it didn't give the Arabs the right to cross the Euphrates and take over Iran. No, that's imperialism. That promise doesn't include the promised land. So the promised land is symbolic. Jerusalem is symbolic. The Ark of the Covenant is symbolic. What is the Ark of the Covenant? It's the heart. It's the heart. So we would, here we're getting back to this narrative thing. Heart to heart. Heart to heart. Truth. Heart to heart. This is the Sufi goal. And what is the promised land? Refuge dominion, provision, protection, <laughs> okay, <laughs> asakina, okay, that's the promised land. And who's the promised land? Well, we're all made of mud, aren't we? We're made of the land. So we become the promised land when we obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.
That's real simple. So, and it doesn't matter where you are in the earth. If you're obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you're on true guidance, you will find this refuge. Allah will give it to you. You will find your own promised land, whether it is in your marriage bed, in your own little house, or no matter where it is, whatever village you've got up there in a the mountain someplace, I don't care where you are, you will have the promised land right there. And even if it brings you to your death, you will die happy. And you will die with uh, the uh, the covenant on your lips. Yeah. yeah. Before before we go on, I just wanted to yeah. ask a side question. It's not really relevant, but yes. how many wives have you had, and how many kids do you have? <laughs> oh dear, I guess somebody wants to know. Okay, I've been married too many times. Uh, that's part of my my. Uh, I guess you can say maybe regret, but it's also part of a search you see, that uh, men make and women make, we're looking for that right covenant with the right mate. And uh, we have, because we're living in a society that uh, doesn't provide the proper education in this realm, including Islam, they're terrible with the respect to educating people about marriage and the psychology of what uh, needs to be understood between men and women. Uh, many mistakes are made, and because of the chauvinism, the male chauvinism particularly that, 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 that occurs in Islam, that prevents a decent marriage from taking place. So the promised land is in, in marriage is not always uh, accessible. Um, so I've had uh, the, uh, I think, let's see, five wives and uh, uh, a number of concubines along the way, it was sort of the you know, covenant wives, if you will, um, uh, that weren't married legally, but five wives who were married uh, legally. And um, I have 10 children that I know about, that I acknowledge. Now, if I have any other children, it could be that uh, some of these women that I've had liaisons with in the past didn't tell me, and I don't know they exist. Allah knows. So um, one of the reasons I have written uh, a book called The Taqwa of Marriage, and I've just finished writing a, another book called uh, Sexology for the Wise, is because I have made numerous errors. And we learn, and everyone knows, especially mature men, we know that we learn from our mistakes. So uh, I have made many mistakes and I tried to rectify them. And I've written these books to try and prevent others from making the same mistakes that, uh, that, I've, that I've made, you see. So um, having said that, I hope that answers your question. No need to get uh, into all the personal ramifications, although mm. some of those stories are very interesting and all of them hold lessons, okay? At least they've mm. held lessons for me and uh, probably would be of uh, use at, uh, on a further date if we discuss uh, marriage and sexual relationships and all this. Yeah, so I think the next episode should be more on COVID vaccines. We can talk about that. Another episode could be on <clears throat> sexual dynamics and all that. Yes. But before we wrap this current one, I wanted to add one question. Yeah, yeah. So there was definitely a lot said today, a lot to digest. Man, um, yeah. Jessica, I'm here for that. But one question that I want to ask you, and I'm sure a lot of people have this question. Sure. How does one go about living off grid? 
Like, what are the steps? What needs to be done? How can it be uh, sustained for a lifetime? Yo, listen, I've been I've been fasting all day. I'm gonna go refill my water bottle and come back. Uh, and I want you guys to just wait till I come back because I don't want to miss anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's just save that for the next session, okay? I'll I'll give you I'll give you one word. Uh, work. Okay, it's not an idea. It's got to be work. It's hard work. Yeah. Sweat. Hard work, long hours in the field. It's not an easy thing to do. And most Muslims do not have what it takes to do it. I'm going to tell you that right now. They're too abstract. They're too busy praying. They're too busy reciting. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do the work. They would uh, They do it for a week or so and then give up. I'll tell you that right now. It requires work, hard work. All right. right. Okay. So, so we if probably stop there, brother, for your sake and for everyone else's sake, and we'll try and do this again another time, inshallah. Inshallah. All right. Bro, this you've is, uh, this you've wet our appetite. Definitely. Yeah. It's going to be a multiple part series. Yep. But, Rami, any thoughts? Um, I'm completely speechless. I do have questions as well, but as the brother said, enough is enough. Mashallah. When, when the teacher says that, we're actually taught, you know, the etiquettes, the etiquettes of the student is not to uh, overwhelm the teacher or not to ask too many questions. So, Jazakallah uh, khair. May Allah bless you, your family, grant you all the highest levels of Jannah. May Allah allow the future episodes to come to fruition and allow us to learn from you, um, from your experiences. And um, everyone, look up the books he was talking about. Which book would you recommend um, if you could recommend one or two? Well, I would definitely re recommend Trinity and the Gospel of Barnabas, which uh, has the title, The Forgotten Saints. I don't think you can get the hard copies anymore. They're probably all sold out, but you can, you can certainly download the PDFs. Okay, perfect. I'm going to link everything in the description. Inshallah. Yeah. Rami, right. anything else? That, that's it. Um, okay. I wanted to slide something in real quick the main takeaway brothers and sisters is living in accordance with the guidance of Allah and yeah. this is something that I want to hit home because everything that Dr. Omar Zaid was speaking on is true how did we even find Dr. Omar Zaid it was through listening to the guidance that Allah gave us we had a sister her name was Milan she came on for an episode to speak on you know, polygyny, speak on, you know, the system, uh, the sex industry, how it's corrupting women, how they're losing modesty and all that. And she mentioned in a passing remark that her father uh, is a Freemason, mm. right? Still part of the occult and how she's been having these conversations with him, trying to, you know, bring him, bring Islam to him. And somebody commented that if you guys want the man to, uh, you know, guide you know her too that can maybe you know help out or make a video it would be dr omar zaid when i heard about it i saw that comment i was like i haven't really heard of that name and looked you up sent you an email and that's how we are here today just through the guidance of allah that's how it is that's exactly how it is and uh, every good doctor knows he doesn't have to advertise because it's word of mouth that uh, brings the patients, they will just come. And that's how it was when I was in practice, Alhamdulillah. 
I was booked three months in advance. I mean, it was very difficult to get in to see me in those years. And uh, I was, you know, still following the nerves. <laughs> so uh, that's saying something, you know, because that's the truth that you just mentioned there. Mm -hmm. the, the truth of what a man does or what a woman does precedes them. Their reputation precedes them. And this opens doors or it closes them. Okay. In certain cases, in my case, it certainly closed doors. So thank you very much, brother. Yeah. So guys, if you made it this far, please, I need all of you guys, all of our viewers to make some extra dua. Whenever you're in Sujud, make some dua for our brother, Dr. Omar Zaid, that he finishes every single goal, inshallah, that he has in plan for the remainder of his time in the dunya. And that being said, I have nothing else to say. Um, Rami, end it off, bro. All right, uh, brother Omar, or Dr. Omar, may Allah bless you immensely. To all the viewers, if you like what you see, like, comment, subscribe, share the video, especially this episode with Dr. Omar, may Allah bless him immensely. Uh, also check out our Patreon, the lowest tier being $5 to, if you want to support us further. With that being said, Allahumma atina fid dunya hasana wa fid akhirati hasana wa kina adhaba nar. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.